I would invite you to find 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, we are beginning to lay the groundwork for our study that we've been talking about uh, earlier on in the year that we were going to do a study this year on the life of David. And if you're familiar with <clears throat> the book of 1 Samuel, you're probably um, aware that, Dan, that David, did I say Daniel? I hope I didn't. I meant to say David. Um, that David uh, does not appear in chapter 8. Uh, he is going to come about in a little bit. But what I wanted to do was to begin to lay the groundwork of what was the context or the historical setting in which David is eventually going to come onto the scene and become king of Israel and one of the best known kings, uh, certainly in, in Israel's history of kings. Uh, most people know David as a man after God's own heart. So we will get to him in due course of time, but I think it's important that leading up to that, that we understand a little bit about what was taking place in the nation of Israel and how they actually got to the place where they had a king at all. And as we begin this morning, I want you to think with me about this very simple principle. I think it's true of most of us. There may be exceptions to what I'm going to say, but I would suggest that these exceptions would probably be few and far between. In most of our hearts, for most of us, the majority of us, there is something in us that we desperately want to fit in. We want to be like everyone else around us. Now, take that thought and set it over here just for a moment. There are certainly times that we want to be sensitive to fitting in, I suppose. I'll give you a quick illustration of that. I have spoken in several different countries. And I remember after one time preaching in a different country that I was um, saying a couple things and did a couple things during the sermon that unbeknownst to me, were very offensive in their culture. And so that day at lunch, the missionary, who I won't name, had a tremendous afternoon of making fun of me and teasing me for how I had, a couple things I had said, and he began something like this. Is it your practice to go to other nations and purposely offend people? And of course I said, no. I had no idea what he was talking about, and I did it multiple times over the course of this trip. And finally I said, well, hopefully your people were not too offended. He goes, ah, don't worry, they understand, you're just a dumb American, so they will forgive you. So we understand that there's a sensitivity to people, I get that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this insatiable desire to fit in, to be like everybody else, to not stand out. My wife and I both grew up in the middle of absolute nowhere. If you get to nowhere, make a left, keep driving. For a long time, you'll get to my wife's house where she grew up, and I'm just a couple miles before you get to nowhere of absolute nowhere. Well, when I was a kid growing up, uh, there was, especially early, especially elementary, middle school age, early high school, if you didn't have a car, you couldn't, we had bicycles. I would, bike, I would ride my bike 20 miles into, the t into our biggest city sometimes just for something to do. I had nothing else to do, so I'd ride my bike 20 miles one way and 20 miles back. My parents never knew where I was, by the way, which is another problem. But you basically didn't see anybody all summer. 
you had no contact, very little contact with people in your class. I had one guy who lived on my road. He was two miles down the road. That was it. So all summer, you would kind of have this expectation when you'd come back to school. We got out of school in the middle of part of June, and you would go back in September. And you were starting to wonder, like, is what was cool in June still cool in September? Is there like a new pair of jeans that came out over the summer that I hope I bought the right ones? Did I buy the right sneakers that everybody else is going to be wearing too? As much as we want to believe that we want to be individualistic, at the core, very often, we would prefer to just fit in. It becomes increasingly problematic when we think about the culture and the world in which we live today. As a believer, as a Christian, take the nonsense of clothes and shoes and and jeans out of the conversation for a moment take the issue of just being a christian and somebody who believes in absolute morality and believes that scripture is inspired by god and that god's word has given us instruction of how we are supposed to live how well is that received in our culture today There is a sense in which the tidal wave that is coming at us has been coming at us for decades now that people rejecting the truth of Scripture, rejecting the idea of absolute morality is increasingly becoming the world in which we live. Which brings me now to Old Testament Israel. Because by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we we would know, just a brief history lesson here, that the nation of Israel was called out of Egypt by God, and God had miraculously brought them into the promised land. And through their time living in the promised land, they were supposed to be a, a peculiar people. Okay, I've always said it this way. As a believer, don't go out of your way to be weird. Believing the Bible is going to make you weird. Just believing basic Christianity is going to make you peculiar in the world's eye. You don't have to go your way to be even more peculiar. Well, they were called to be a peculiar people in the sense that they were to be unique. They were supposed to stand out from the other nations. Not so that they would draw attention to themselves, not so that they would be arrogant and they would be condescending, but so that the nations around them would see something unique about this nation and that they would come to believe in the God of Israel. Now, just put that aside for a moment and understand that as a New Testament church today, living now in the New Testament age under the New Covenant, We are not called, God hasn't called a particular nation to be that peculiar people, salt and light to the world. That is now the responsibility of the church. We'll get to that later. But in this historical context, the people of God were the nation of Israel. Now we come to 1 Samuel. Samuel is a unique person who we won't spend a lot of time talking about, but he will become obviously a very important person in our, in our series. But Samuel was, in a sense, the very first of the judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, we preached through that a couple of years ago, that the book of Judges, that there would come an oppressor against the people of Israel and God would raise up a judge. Most of those judges, their influence was very localized. Samuel becomes, in a sense, this first judge that had a very widespread 
interaction with the people of God. In other words, it was more of a national ministry than it was a localized ministry. He had a very extensive um, role that he played within this period of time, knowing that Samuel was both a judge and a prophet. He actually was fulfilling both of those offices. So Samuel is now on the scene. Samuel has been on the scene now for a period of time. And now we come to 1 Samuel 8, and let's begin reading in verse number one and find out the setting of what happens in this context. Verse one, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of the second was Abijah and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned, after, turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted just justice. Okay, so we are first of all introduced to Samuel in these first couple of verses and put this on a historical timeline. We are around the year 1051 BC. So we are approximately 1,000 years prior to the coming of Christ. Jesus is yet future. He has not come yet. And Samuel is ministering in Ramah while his sons are down in Beersheba, which is the most southern part of the nation of Israel. Now we learn something interesting about Samuel. We are told, first of all, that he's old. Now I overheard a conversation recently couple young people were talking and one of the young ladies says well you know I went to this place but it was just a whole bunch of old people and in the back of my mind I'm saying man I'm curious how she's going to define this what's old well old people say is a mindset I get that well Samuel was about 70 years old so apparently I guess that's the cutoff I don't know but he is called old he is looked at as an aging leader He's a man now getting later on in his years. But there's a bigger problem. His sons. His sons are certainly not godly. And by the way, understanding that also within the same book of 1 Samuel, very likely that many of the elders here, the leaders in Israel, there is a couple of other sons that are coming to their mind, particularly the sons of Eli. They were also not known for their morality. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the sons of Eli are called worthless. And so here we are again. Now Samuel's sons are being described as people that were turning away from the way of the Lord. They were taking bribes. They were perverting judgment and justice. They were not people that could be relied upon. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the, the law says specifically that judges had to be righteous in their judgment. They could not show partiality. And it specifically said that they were not to accept a bribe. Proverbs 17, 23 says it this way, the wicked accept a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So these men were able to be bought off. They were for sale in a sense. What if you gave them the right price and they would make a judgment in your favor? Now, I don't want to press this text too hard, but we want to understand something. That a judge, when you think back to the period of judges, a judge, Samuel included, was someone that was called specifically by God. God had raised up in, the, in judges these men and women that would go on to be leaders of the people. Samuel here, there's a 
at least to me, there's at least this hint of nepotism. He names them judge. And therein becomes a very real issue. In fact, this issue came up earlier in the book of Judges with with Gideon. In Judges chapter 8, we find these words. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, he was one of the judges, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, go ahead, Gideon, you just be our leader. And then we'll set up this succession that your sons can rule and then your grandsons can rule. But Gideon responds to them and says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, let's understand in this context where Gideon here is reminding them of part of their very unique calling was that they were supposed to be a nation that was directly under the authority of God himself. They were a theocracy. They were under the direct leadership of God. Now, here's what often happens is that when life, maybe, maybe you've done this, when life throws you some very difficult circumstances and you rush to a decision, how often do you make a wise decision? Samuel's sons are not in a permanent position. This could have been dealt with. They could have been easily removed from their position. Rather than looking at Samuel and saying, you know what, you're getting older in age, but our history tells us that repeatedly God has risen up someone to be our leader and to take care of us. And every time we've been in this situation before, God has provided for us. We're going to trust God. We're going to pray that when Samuel does enter into God's kingdom, that God will raise up somebody else. That seems to be the reasonable approach, but watch what they do instead. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel, which seems to be this group of leadership, they come and they gather together and they come to Samuel, who's at Ramah, and they said to him, behold, again, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So here's the solution. Appoint for us a king to judge over us just like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. We don't want to stand out anymore. We don't want to be peculiar. We don't want to be seen as odd. Just give us a king, somebody over us to judge us. But notice verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king and judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. That is very interesting to me. Now, there is no record, and I certainly can't stand outside of Scripture and say this dogmatically, but there is no record in Scripture that the elders ever made this a matter of prayer. This seems very reactionary. Not only is Samuel old, not only are his couple of sons um, immoral and acting immorally, but they also are facing all kinds of pressure from the nations around them. Israel was hated, you know that. People, surrounding nations, they wanted them taken out. They wanted to destroy this people. They didn't want to 
uh, work with them or hear that they were somehow special because they were God's chosen people. They didn't want to hear that. And yet God had called these people out of Egypt, the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt to be his people. And in Exodus, we find this. He says, when God says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, there's something unique about you. There's something special about you. You're my people. In fact, in Leviticus, we find this, when God said, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Basically, essentially, giving Samuel's reaction of frustration and hurt and anger when he says that this displeased them, they are basically saying, God, you're just not enough anymore. We need something else. We need a different solution. I mean, I guess as I hit the pause button on my own life for a moment, I guess living by faith gets tiresome, doesn't it? Doesn't it get tiresome when it feels like I have to live each and every single day of my life by faith? The problem is with Israel in particular, God had shown himself to be faithful again and again and again and again. How many times does he have to divide the sea for you? How many miracles does he have to perform to deliver you from oppression? And yet they look at this situation and say, just please give us a king. Now Samuel, in a very real sense, shows his godliness here. speak harshly against this request. Instead, while he is wounded, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, Samuel takes this before God and seeks the Lord's direction in this decision. Now, before we go any further, the request for a king, by the way, is not necessarily the problem. In fact, I won't read the entire text, but in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we are told that it's, uh, we'll read the first couple of verses. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then they say, I will set a king over me. Like all the other nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he goes on and gives them requirements for what this king was supposed to be like. Okay, and I won't read the text, but let me just read for you some of these requirements that this king was supposed to have. First, they had to be chosen by God. It had to be a person that God himself chose as their king. It also had to be a person who was a Hebrew. The king couldn't be somebody who was going to use this position to be greedy. It talks about gathering horses and wives like the pagan nations around them. The king of Israel was not supposed to do that. He was supposed to be different. But most importantly, this king was supposed to be committed to Scripture and he was supposed to be a man of humility. And so Samuel, in his reaction, prays, Lord, what would you have me to do in, the light, in light of this request? Notice verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
Man, that's a strong statement. Being rejected, it's never fun. How many of you get up every day and just pray, Lord, today I want to be rejected. I want to be hated. I want groups of people to despise me. I just want to be outright, categorically rejected by every human being I come into contact with. Nobody enjoys that unless you're really unusual. Most people don't like being rejected. So not only was Samuel a godly man, he was a man. He was a human being. And so when he comes to God and he says, Lord, they have rejected me. They've rejected my leadership. And in his mind, he's thinking through like most leaders do, at least I do. What did I do wrong? I mean, what happened? What did I do? Did I make a mistake? And God says, Samuel, just, just hold on for a moment. They're not ultimately of this building tidal wave of opposition to scripture opposition to the very belief in God opposition to absolute morality you better be ready to be rejected and the question is whether or not you're going to be rejected the question is what basis am I going to be rejected upon if somebody says to you, you know what, I reject everything you say because you believe in Jesus and you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and you believe that the scriptures are God's word, true for all people in all places and all time, you believe in absolute morality, I reject you. You say, amen, because I'm in good company. Because they're not ultimately rejecting you, they're rejecting God. And even Samuel had to be reminded of this. When the people of Israel, his chosen people, the ones he had handpicked and had worked miraculously through them, they looked God in the face and said, no, thank you. We don't want this anymore. Instead, we want a king just like everybody else. And this outright rejection was something that the people of Israel we're going to have to understand the ramifications of that. And certainly on a personal level, Samuel needed to understand that they were not rejecting him personally. They were rejecting God himself. So God says to them, give them a king. And then uh, verse 8, it says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God kind of says, now you know how it feels. Often you love your kids and man, you just want them to do right. And, and, and the pain you experience as a, as a parent to say, you know, maybe your kid makes a bad, foolish decision or something like that. And I just often think, how much more is that, magnet, much more magnitude is that from God to us as his people? And God, in a sense, is saying to Samuel, this is just, this is just a taste. A taste of what it's like for us, our creator, our savior, our redeemer, to be rejected. Notice the text goes on and he says, Now then, obey their voice. 
Give them what they want. Only do this, Samuel. Solemnly warn them. Don't just give them what they want. I want you to warn them of the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This picture of giving them a... to follow through and have a king like they like they thought that they wanted notice he says to them tell them what it's going to be like under their under their rule explain it to them so he does watch what he says verse 10 so samuel told the words of the lord to the people who were asking for a king from him solomon samuel samuel says okay when it's He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Okay, so in the call, number one, here's what the king is going to do. He's going to take your sons. There's a principle here, folks. Big government always comes at a very big expense. And for years, there had been no standing military. So you want a king? Okay, let's start thinking this through. In our current day and age, the clearest um, royal family in our culture would be that over Great Britain. And you see the pomp and circumstance. You see all that it comes with caring for the Queen of England. You see all that goes into that. It would apply to our president as well. The same principle would apply. And he says, he is going to take your sons. This isn't, this is, this is, this is a draft. This isn't, hey, go down to your local recruiter and sign up. So now you're going to, your sons are going to be caring for his chariots. There's an aspect in which there's going to be personal care given to the king himself. He's got to be protected. He's got to be toted around in his nice fancy chariots. And you're going to carry him all. If you want to be like all the other nations, you got to keep up. It's got to look a certain way. You got to have all the things that go with royalty. Not only that, you're going to have infantrymen. You're going to have people that are out there fighting and training as soldiers. You're going to have those that are out there tilling the ground. Because kings can't eat the apples that are off, off the ground. they got to eat the best, the finest. they got to have the best things that are given to a king. So understand the first cost that it's going to be to you is your sons are not going to be farming your land to sustain you. They're going to be farming the king's land to sustain him. Just make sure you put this down on your ledger. This is cost number one. Now, lest we say, well, okay, at least I get to keep my daughters. Don't be so quick. He will take your daughters too to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will also take the best. In other words, stop there for a minute. You remember those quiet dinners at home you had after you worked in the fields all day and you had all the, the fruit from your labor and you sat down to a meal and your son was there and your daughters were there and you had this wonderful, yeah, those days are over. Those days are over. He's going to take your sons and your daughters 
Oh, it gets worse. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields. The best. The best. Not what's left over. If he's going to be... Again, later, notice the verb take. The king is going to take. He is going to take. He is going to take. And he's going to give them to his servants. It's going to go to sustain him and his palace. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. I mean, they got to eat too. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Whew. This is Samuel speaking the word of God himself. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a stern warning. Okay, you want to do this? Go ahead. Here's the cost. Boom, 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 boom. Add it up. And there's coming a time that you're going to come before the Lord. And maybe you've made a rash decision in your life. You've done something in circumstances that was foolish. And now you get down the road and you start reaping the consequence of that decision. And you say what God predicts they're going to say. And it's very simply, what have I done? What, what are we thinking? You see, this seems like an easy solution. Samuel's going to be dead soon. His sons are bums. Let's get us a king. All of our problems are going to be taken away, away from us. What do they want? They want conformity. They just want to be like everybody else. They want security that this king going to bring for them. Yeah, well, there's coming a day that you are going to regret this decision. It sounds good today, but buddy, what it's going to bring for you later is going to be nothing but heartbreak. Now, it's interesting between verse 18 and verse 19. Don't read it yet. I don't know what happens between those couple of verses. The Bible certainly doesn't tell us. But, but I personally have a hard time in my sanctified imagination if I was going to film this scene and I see Samuel pouring out his heart before the elders and saying, please don't do this. Look at what it's going to cost you. That then what would you film next? Like, what would happen next? Do you think that the elders would get together? Okay, guys, huddle up, huddle up. What, what do you think? Is this a good decision? I don't know, man. What do you think? That sounds pretty bad. I don't view it that way. I view it this way. Verse 19, but the people refused. No, thank you. Samuel, you're just an old man. What do you know? We know better than you. No. 
but there shall be a king over us. Why? Why do you want a king so desperately? That we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles for you. I thought that's what God was doing for generations. I thought God was the one fighting your battles. Oh no, they want flesh and blood. They want somebody in a palace. They want a king. They want someone that they can see. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Give them a king. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, go every man to his city. Now, what does this mean for us? That's a long time ago. We're talking a thousand years before Christ. What do these events of 1 Samuel 8 have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. Because in a very real sense, Israel's demand for a king is an example of how negative circumstances can bring us to the place where we make foolish decisions. Now, we know the rest of how this plays out. We know that, that Saul, will get to him, he becomes the first king and he certainly is less than um, admirable. Then we get to David and we have Solomon. But there is, and David was really this, we'll get to him, obviously, is who we're studying. He's the man after God's own heart. And then Solomon kind of inherits his dad's kingdom. And there's, there's some continuity there. And then after that, it is just downhill. There's a few good kings sprinkled in. But the spiral is, after David in particular, it is a downward spiral. So what got Israel into trouble? Let me ask you this question. What gets you into trouble when you make foolish decisions the way Israel did? Yeah, their circumstances were challenging. To just live by faith. They were no longer willing to stand out in a right way. To stand against the nations that were around them. And to stand in opposition to what they were doing. To stand for the clear commandments of scripture. I mean let's, let's be honest this morning. Doesn't obeying God just get tiresome sometimes? Man, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't read the news in the morning. I, I do later, but like first thing, I don't do that. When you look at the news, I have a couple podcasts I listen to in the morning. So I'm getting ready and stuff. And you start hearing what's coming. It's like, <laughs> really? Another day in paradise. It's miserable. What is going on around here? You know what? Forget it. It's tiresome. Obeying God, it's hard. I get weary. Ministry's hard. Life is hard. Parenting is hard. All those things are difficult. You know what? Just conform to the world. Because quite frankly, I want to be like my neighbor. I want to be like my coworker. Or maybe I'm a kid and I'm a teenager. I, I just want to be like the other kids in my school. I mean, no other parent makes their kids do that. No other parent doesn't let their kids do that. That's not fair. You know what? Just do what you want. Isn't that tempting? 
or am I the only loser in the room? Conformity just is very appealing at times. I just want to blend in. That's what Israel wanted. We just, we just want to blend. Can't we just have a king like everybody else? I mean, can't we just live danger? But number two, they also wanted security. But the problem was, I get that, and we all want security. You know what? God's going to raise up the right person at the right time to deliver us because we are his people and we're going to rest in him. We're going to trust in him. He is going to be our shield. He is going to be our buckler. He's going to be the one who defends us. Now we'd rather have a king instead. We can see him. We can see the palace. We can see the walls. We can see his chariots. We can see his spears. We can see his army. Man, it's just so impressive. And yet Samuel warned him, yeah, there's coming a day that you're going to say, what have we done? Number three, and this is the more dangerous one. These get increasingly dangerous. Number three, they rejected God. And in this case, they rejected Nope, we want a king. Even though they were warned... Even though they were told that they would live to regret this decision, they rejected God. Number four, they refused wise counsel. I would actually correct that and say not only did they refuse. Revelation. <laughs> It wasn't just the opinion of Samuel. It wasn't like Samuel said, hey, guys, here's what I think about it. He went and prayed to God, the creator. And the creator says, go tell them the cost, and you better spell it out for them. You better warn them as my direct mouthpiece. Ah, uh, no, thank you. Rejected, categorically rejected wise counsel, and in fact, Worse, they, they, they rejected divine revelation. And then number five, they failed to count the cost. Foolish decisions bring devastating. I don't know about you, I hope you do this. Before we make a major decision, we always count the cost. You know, we spent a bunch of weeks talking about God's will for my life. And counting the cost would be, well, I have this job, but I could take this job and make more money. Okay, so, okay, great, you make more money. But what is the cost of that? Well, I'm only home for six hours a month, but hey, the money's good. Never going to see my kids, but hey, look at all that money. See, the count the cost means surely there's benefits to having a king. You could take your benefit column and say, well, you know, here's some things we would get from having a king. Security, big parades to go to, and all kinds of fancy chariots, and the, wow, all the other nations will be so impressed with our, with our king. That's going to be great. 
Okay, but what's the cost? Your family? Your fields? Your money? Your time? You're going to be his servant. And by the way, when the king comes to take something, he takes it. It's not a suggestion. And he will take whatever he chooses. That's okay, we want a king. We, we want a king. I think in reality, they heard Samuel, but they didn't hear Samuel. You know why? Because they didn't want to hear it. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. My question for us this morning is very pointedly, are we any different than that? Are we really any different from the people of Israel? I mean, when you look at that list, how many of us want conformity? We just want to fit in. How many of us want security? Oh, all of us, sure. But how often do we reject God? How often do we refuse wise counsel? Admittedly, from a human being in our current age, they're all fallible. There is no prophet from God speaking divine truth to us today. That's true. But how many of us refuse wise counsel? And more importantly, how often do we just fail to count the cost? It may be fun for a season. It may be enjoyable for a time. But what are you going to pay in the end? What road are you on today? What road are you traveling? Is there a clear commandment in Scripture that you are just refusing to live? Is your desire for conformity to the world in which we live leading you to the place that you are rejecting the idea of what Peter says, that you have been called out to be a peculiar people, to be salt and light to the world? What matters to you more? Conforming to this age and earning the approval of men or living for your creator, possibly and even very likely being rejected by men, but living a life that honors my God. Which one matters more to you? Because it's hard. But I think each and every one of us would say we would rather live for the Lord than conform to this wicked age and fall prey to the idea of fragile security in the things of this world. Hear God's warning, but don't be foolish like the elders of Israel. Obey your creator. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text that we've been able to study together this morning. And the lessons that we can draw from these verses and the ones that will follow. We know, we understand that this all fit within your sovereign plan. We understand that. But as we look into these verses, we see just a very rash decision. May we never be people that would desire to just fit in with the world around us. And, and just cave to the pressures that we face in this world. May we stand firm on the unchanging truths of your word, even if it means being rejected by men. So Lord, thank you for the privilege of presenting this this morning. Lay it to our hearts. Help us to change and grow, to become more like Christ. And maybe there's an area in someone's life here this morning or watching online that they know that they're heading down a dangerous path. 
and the cost may already be accumulating, may they now, even now, repent and change and get back on a path that would please you. Dismiss us now with your blessing and give us a good week as we begin a new one tomorrow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping today. Cause you're not alone Oh my soul You're not